This episode is sponsored by Watershed, modern software to help businesses turn carbon data into action. Join Watershed on September 23rd for an event about climate solutions and how companies can accelerate the technologies, policies, and tactics that really work. For more information, please visit watershedclimate.com. And this episode is sponsored by global technology company ABB. Through its leading technologies and sustainable business practices, ABB is enabling a low-carbon society. Find out more at abb.com forward slash sustainability. From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, climate, biodiversity, and the other COP, Gordon Gecko meets ESG, equity, diversity, and inclusion in sustainability, and we're going to need a bigger boat, climate strategy beyond COP. We're on an even keel this week on 350. It's September 17th, 2021. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. Joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, no doubt decked out in her fall colors and getting ready for Climate Week is Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. I'm going to see you next week. That is so exciting. I'm really it's, thrilled. It, it's been, what, seven, eight years since I've last <laughs> seen you? It feels like it. <laughs> I know it does. No, it's been, uh, it's probably been, um, well, I saw you in Phoenix in early 2020. Yes. That was the last, the last... Heather Clancy sighting that I was able to enjoy. IRL, I think as it's called. IRL. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, um, Climate Week, uh, we'll see what it's all about. Uh, it's it's um, like everything else these days. It's a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and a lot of online. Um, but, um, you know, it's just a good excuse to be in New York, where I haven't been for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people I want to see. Um, uh, and there's a lot going on. And there, there are enough events that I'll be... Uh, engage in as i believe you will be too yeah it should be glorious here for you uh i i also i i would be remiss if i didn't congratulate you congratulations to your state for avoiding some <laughs> rather interesting oh that uh, yeah potential yeah, fate I, as yeah. i recall that's yeah uh, yeah the, re- the recall was was this week <laughs> seems so long ago now but um yeah that uh that worked oh. out. Uh, it's it's uh, it, it was a little bit of a nail biter for a while because yeah. um, I mean, simply from the the climate perspective mm-hmm. uh, alone, and there's so many other aspects of it too. That the the leadership that the state of California has had, uh, and much of it under the leadership of Gavin Newsom, who is to be honest, continuing a lot of the policy set by his predecessor uh, Jerry Brown, but still doubling down on and on so many things. Uh, on renewable energy and energy efficiency and water issues and all the complicated things we're facing in this uh, parched, burning state. Uh, so, uh, it, and it would have been uh, a lot of those things would have gone bye bye if uh, one of the, the forty-six uh, candidates running to uh, succeed him. 
uh, were to, were to uh, somehow win. And fortunately, it was a, it was a great vote to uh, continue the, the journey that uh, California is on, on not just on, on climate, of course, but on, on so many other issues, and including the pandemic, which is, you know, I mean, Gavin Newsom, you know, great guy, made some stupid mistakes, uh, optically in particular, where he went to some restaurant without a mask yeah. and all that stuff. But, but you know, those are the culture war kinds of things that, that some folks like to grab onto. And his policies, from the perspective of climate and energy and the things that we talk about, Heather, is, are really right on. So I'm, th- thank you for the congratulations. I'm relieved and so glad that we'll be able to uh, continue that, uh, uh, that leadership. Me too. Yeah. Well, that was one aspect of this week, but uh, let's check out the rest of the Week in Review. So I'll get us started, Joel, if you don't mind, because I want to billboard your piece on climate, biodiversity, and, quote, the other cop, end quote. (laughs) Which, um, you know, I I was vaguely aware of this before I read the piece. I had, I recalled when we discussed it last year, when when we thought we might have some travel (laughs) 18 months ago, we were talking about you going to the biodiversity cop um, in China next month. And and that's where it it still is now taking place. You're not going, although I will see you in Scotland. But I, I was fascinated to read about this because we talk about biodiversity and there have been some wonderful, um, you know, papers out by various organizations, the United Nations, the, the World Economic Forum, um, about the importance of biodiversity and sort of it as an economic driver. I, I think the figure that's 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 thrown out often is $44 trillion of global GDP, which is just over half of the economic activity in the world is moderately or highly dependent on nature. So we don't talk about biodiversity as much as we talk about carbon dioxide removal and greenhouse gases and so forth, but it's super important. And I love that you highlighted the importance of this issue because I feel like it's only going to become more important. Tell me about... um, some of the things you're going to be uh, exploring and, and what you what you discovered this week in your conversation uh, with Eva. Eva Zaba, Zabi, is that how you pronounce her name? Zabe. Zabe. Eva Zabe, uh, Executive Director of Business for Nature. Yeah. Well, first of all, just in the time warp that we live in, when we were talking uh, about my going to uh, China for the Biodiversity Cop, that was actually going to be in 2020. Oh, uh, right. <laughs> and like so many other things, uh, including the, the COP26, which uh, that was supposed to be a year ago, um, that, that got uh, pandemic delayed. Um, and so... Yeah, the, it's it's going to happen. Although it's going to happen in a two part thing, but this is the UN Committee of the Parties COP, as it's called, uh, coming together to look at at biodiversity issues. And this is really, uh, if you if you sort of look at the the three legged stool of, of challenges we have, there's the social equity challenge, there's the climate challenge, and the third one is the biodiversity challenge because, uh, and they're all linked, uh, and, and largely because of climate change. Um, so many species, so many habitats, so many ecosystems are being threatened or worse 
And many, many of those have a direct impact on, as, as you said, on, on economic activity, on uh, agriculture and forestry being obvious ones, but products that, that come out of agriculture, forestry uh, go into so many other things. And, and uh, just fresh water, the hydrologic cycle, uh, air filtration, pollination, uh, so many of the nature services that, that you know, we count on and that don't have a price tag do not show up on companies' balance sheets, uh, but uh, are essential to economic activity are being threatened. And, and we're not really paying attention. So this is a group, this is the, the com- countries of the world coming together to pick up. Uh, this is a conversation that's been going on for a long time. This is COP15 for the biodiversity, uh, COP26 for climate. Uh, and um, we're starting to see a lot of interest and action on this. Uh, so uh, I spoke with uh, Eva, as you said, Zebe, from uh, who, who runs the uh, Business for Nature uh, organization out of the UK, uh, to get her sense, because she really is uh, one of the nexus points of, uh, of her organization, is uh, of the companies, governments, NGOs, and others that are addressing this. So uh, it was a really enlightening to me conversation. I did not know a lot about this. I just knew it was coming and it was important. But we're going to be seeing this is, uh, you know, uh, coming attractions. This is this is happening. We're, we're soon to see uh, the Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosures, right. TN, TNFD. Yep. And I think most of our uh, listeners uh, at least have some familiarity with uh its predecessor or its counterpart, TCFD, the Task Force on Climate Climate Related Financial Disclosures, which is uh, creating uh, standards for on w- by which companies report their impacts on climate and now uh, on on nature related disclosures uh, to their investors to say, you know, this is what is at risk in our supply chain and our customer base and in our operations. So, I mean, it, it, it was just, uh, for me, a real eye-opener, and I, I encourage you to read uh, this uh, Q&A that I did um, with Eva, and uh, I hope that uh, you too will be enlightened by this. Yeah. Can I just, one, one question before we leave this. I'm just sure. curious what the goal is of Business for Nature. Like, what, what is that? So Business for Nature is a coalition of uh, companies, NGOs, uh, and others, and and more than 50 partner organizations that uh, really are focusing on exactly this topic, uh, advocacy, engagement, outreach. Um, They have a common goal of encouraging business action married with ambitious policies to reverse nature loss in this decade. So one of the goals is, you know, we have the net zero by 2050 or 80% reductions by 2030. This is reversing nature loss in this decade. So it's basically stop the hemorrhaging and then figure out, well, how do we then support these these ecosystems? Because by the way, these ecosystems, just as they're being harmed by, by climate change, are also part of the solution, nature-based solutions to climate change and to resilience and to adaptation. So so this is a bunch of groups, World Economic Forum, World Business Council for Sustainable Development, the International Chamber of Commerce, that we mean Business Coalition, WWF, Nature Conservancy, blah, you know, lots and lots and lots of groups, uh, including the United Nations group uh, and, and CDP and, and others, coming together with this common goal. And, and by the way, one of the goals of this so- COP is to come together on a global agreement on biodiversity, 
uh, and there is a uh, something called the Post 2020 Global Biodiversity Framework that is uh, is already exists, but it, the, one of the goals of all these groups is to strengthen that. Uh, that's a framework that's being negotiated by governments. That's the business of COP. And, and by the way, one one last thing is that uh, COP, again, because of of the world in which we now live, uh, is uh, in two parts. So there's uh, part one, which is uh, coming up in October, going to be very high level. It's only going to be heads of states, very restricted number. That's the part uh, that's going to be taking place, and and no negotiations. Uh, the negotiations are going to pick up again in the spring at part two of of COP15. And so, you know, just this ongoing saga of how uh, the pandemic, which, by the way, has its own roots potentially in biodiversity loss and, and, and interspecies relations and all kinds of things. So it's uh, it's this is a part of the business world that has not really been addressed, to your point, Heather. And I'm really glad uh, that, uh, that COP15 is going to uh, raise uh, this issue. And, and uh, there's an opportunity for companies to uh, participate and figure out how they're impacted and how they can be part of the solution. So I'm going to steer us to our next story, which is by our columnist, Terry Yossi. Hey, Terry. Um, uh, and focusing on the other COP, <laughs> and actually beyond the other COP, um, so he, he's uh, he's got a piece here that kind of lays the groundwork for, um, you know, thinking about what's going to be happening and talked about in November, but also um, the the larger response after that. We, we, we know that the the uh, you know, and I'll just lay it out there um, that the business community response has been kind of uh, underwhelming. Right. So we we know that we've got some tremendous uh, tremendous support from from the the communities that we know the companies that we know as pioneers, but only 17% of companies out there in the world have established a comprehensive net zero or carbon neutrality goal. So like, there's a lot of companies in the Fortune 500 that have not done this, um, and so we re- we need so much beyond um, what what we we see now. And so he's kind of lays out some of the. Some of the ideas and, and uh, topics and risks that he, he hopes will be discussed during the, the, the other conference of the parties in, in Glasgow with respect to the larger uh, emissions reductions that we need from c- countries and companies and so forth. And I think one of the things for me right now that, that's so um, frustrating is the, and, and you've probably been following this as well, Joel, but there's, there's a lot of the companies that have been so forthright and and vocal about their plans individually are part of the Chamber of Commerce, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which is lobbying against the 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 um, the infrastructure bills and and budget reconciliation that are going through Congress in the United States right now, which is fundamental to the climate policy of the United States. And they're they're part of, you know, so on the one hand, they're they're doing things or saying they're doing things, and on the other hand, they're they're part of this multi-million-dollar lobbying campaign that's trying to take out um, a lot of this stuff in in the bills that that would help the climate cause in in the United States. So, yeah, um, lot to parse here in this essay. I've talked quite a bit. What what jumped out for you? Well, what, what stood out for me on this, Heather, because this is, again, looking beyond COP, is fascinating, this this idea of a grand bargain among the major economic and political blocs, China, the European Union, and the United States, 
in which the leaders, uh, Xi Jinping and Ursula in China, Ursula von der Leyen in, in the EU, and of course, uh, a young man named Joe Biden here in the States, personally weigh in and take personal uh, control and responsibility for steering the world towards this climate agreement. And, you know, he says this will take an enormous investment of their time and political capital and negotiation of multiple issues that currently interfere with their ability to successfully collaborate, including trade disputes. But working in favor of a geopolitical grand bargain around climate change uh, really struck me as as the big idea here. And I have to mm-hmm. you know say, as someone who wrote a book called The New Grand Strategy <laughs> about a, five years ago about a grand strategy for the United States that puts sustainability at the center and deals with uh, prosperity, security, and sustainability, uh, this this really uh, hit home for me. You know, thinking bigger, thinking systemically, thinking collaboratively with folks with whom we don't necessarily collaborate or with whom it's extremely hard to collaborate and may not even fully trust. But I think we're at a point now where we need to be looking, uh, digging deeper, uh, looking at, 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 at bigger ideas and bigger solution sets. And um, uh, that was the part of this that really stood out for me. Uh, so what, what else did you have from this, Heather? Yeah, so Terry references uh, Bill McKibben, who has been writing for The New Yorker, um, but who just stepped out of that act, you know, doing the, the regular column, his climate crisis column, um, it, because he wants to focus on a new initiative to, to bring, quote, experienced Americans, end quote, baby boomers into the dialogue. Um, to your point about, like, including the voices, like, we hear so much about youth, and, and the youth movement has been so instrumental in getting us far more fired up about doing things and um but we need those other voices in as well and and we do have people who 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 have grandchildren they they, they you know they're they're concerned about the the future of their children and grandchildren and they also have a lot of knowledge and they also have a lot of money um and so the the idea that we need to get that that dialogue going um you know, bi-directionally um, is is really important for me. I just that that like really leapt out at me. I thought maybe maybe because I'm closer to the baby boomer age than the youth age. Maybe that's why. But but uh, anyway, I just it's so important. Well, we keep, can't keep talking around each other, right? Yeah. Well, I'm I'm smack dab in the middle of the baby boomer generation, and and what he did, uh, Bill McKibben, um, just a couple of weeks ago, is he launched a, a, an organization, a campaign, a movement. I'm not exactly sure how to characterize it, called Third Act. Uh, it's it's uh, baby boomers and the silent generation, which is the generation that uh, preceded boomers, people over sixty like me, who, uh, you know, have the the time, the inclination and the resources in many cases to work on, uh, as he calls it, a fair and stable planet. So, uh, yeah, you can go to thirdact.org and learn more about that. But let's turn to another story that uh, that we ran this week by our uh, Greenfin columnist, uh, C.J. Klaus. She did, I thought, an extraordinary piece. It's uh, headlined uh, Gordon Gecko versus ESG, <laughs> environmental social governance issues. Gordon Gecko, of course, being the fictional character from Wall Street who famously said, uh, greed is good. Um, <laughs> uh, and what uh, <laughs> where Gordon Gecko fits into this is it's kind of a journalistic device to, to 
get people's attention. It certainly got mine. It has to do with looking at some IPOs that are coming out, initial public offerings, some, some companies like Chobani Yogurt being one that were sort of being uh, poo-pooed by some of the mainstream media, uh, and she cites one particular CNBC interview as saying that these brands are, are do-gooder brands and they're, you know, they're only doing it, uh, they're not really as you know, socially conscious as they make themselves out to be. Uh, um, and this is the criticism. And, and of course, she's laying that to waste and talking about the fact that this is just another way for the those who want to continue the status quo to, uh, you know, to be naysayers and to put these companies in a box. My, and it really gets to, uh, it's just such a well-written essay, but it really gets to a point that, that I, I just find humorous in its hypocritical nature you know, this is the free marketeers out there who say, you know, let markets decide of how you know companies allocate their resources and the energy uh, technologies that that win and all those kinds of things. And then they look at a company that's that's prioritizing things beyond the environment, uh, social issues among them, uh, employee well-being, and, and and lots of other issues, and making money doing that and saying no, that's just window dressing. That's not really you know, part and parcel. This is this goes back, you know, to these arguments we've been having for half a century around what what is the social responsibility of business. So, you know, I love it when you know when somebody uh, I give a talk, you know, at a business school or a business group or or just have a conversation with with somebody about some of these topics, and they say. Yeah, but these companies aren't really trying, doing all these things because they care about the planet. They're just doing this to make money. Bingo. Yes, this is profitable stuff. This is stuff that makes money for companies. <laughs> what are you yep. bitching about that this is somehow not <laughs> relevant to, you know, product, to profits and productivity? So it just, it, it's, it's, it's funny in in it, like I said, it could be so hypocritical, but that's what this is about. And she, it's a great piece, as I've said for I think the third time uh, now. I talk about Allbirds and their uh, how they they're certified B Corp and how that fits into to what um, companies are doing. She brings in the public benefit corporations, uh, just these this legal entity, and I think thirty some states that that where companies can legally say we we are prioritizing things in addition to. To our, our shareholders, like the environment. Anyway, what, what did you take away from this, Heather? So yeah, a lot of the same things you just said, but you know, I think it's important to, men to mention that both the companies you just mentioned, Chobani and, and Alberts, were founded with that at their founding at their beginning principles. It's part of their mission. They they you know the 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 founder of Chobani. I mean he he. He took. He handed over ten percent of the shares to the the full time employees. Uh, you know, like they they had good wage. You know, they had good social and employment um, policies from the beginning. And so I love that part of it. But, but the other thing that, that leaps out for me is as as these companies, as these mission based or values based or you know, like I think Alberts is having what a sustainable public. Sustainable public equity offering, <laughs> which is interesting. Yeah. I've never heard that term before. Um, they're they're coming from the private world, which has had very different disclosure requirements than the 
the public companies as far as ESG. I mean, well, I mean, no one's got requirements, but they've got different expectations from the investment community. So they haven't really had to say much about their other the other aspects of their business, the environmental aspect of their business and so forth. And they really don't have necessarily the same um, information available. So I think that is going to become intriguing and interesting as we, we see these private companies meet the public markets. I've actually seen some technology companies suddenly come up with <laughs> climate plans, you know, to the to the to the point about the sort of, you know, hypocritical nature of some of this, you know, like, oh, gosh, we got to do this checkbox, you know, we have to put these things in place before going, you know, before announcing their IPO. But these are very different companies. Um, anyway, I don't know, the, the, the whole aspect of private you know, what you have to disclose as a private company or what you should disclose as a private company versus what you disclose as a public company, I think will become more um, in the headlines as, as this happens, as, as we see more of these companies start to, to approach the public markets. Well, they can uh, they can laugh all they want at these companies. These companies seem to be doing well, and uh, I'll, I'll enjoy the entertainment of their uh, hypocrisy while I sit there uh, in my Allbirds uh, eating a nice Greek yogurt. sustainability profession has a diversity challenge. Even though many of the most senior and experienced practitioners are white, many of the problems they are addressing resonate most closely with people of color. New research out this week from membership organization Diversity and Sustainability offers insights both into demographics and to the barriers that must be addressed to attract and include more Black, Indigenous, Latinx, and Asian individuals. Among other things, the survey of 1,500 sustainability professionals in Canada, the UK, and the US suggested that the profession is pretty privileged. 75% of those surveyed came from a middle-class background, and 62% had at least a master's degree. The racial-ethnic makeup of early career respondents was markedly more diverse than for senior leadership. 42% of those aged from 18 to 24 were people of color. Joining Green Biz 350 to chat about the findings is Heather Mack, co-founder of Diversity in Sustainability. Hey, Heather. Hi, Heather. <laughs> nice to meet you. I know. It's fun to talk to another Heather. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So first, tell me about the Diversity and Sustainability organization. When was it founded and what's its mission? So we were founded last June 2020. So this was after the murders of Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and George Floyd. I think last summer as a society, we were doing a lot of reflection on racial justice. And for decades, there's been quite a bit of research conducted on environmental and social injustices. And it's been shown that people of color, even more than any other indicators such as gender or poverty, they're faced with the most exposure to things like air pollution, chemicals, toxic waste, and a lack of access to clean drinking water. I also had some time to think a bit more about our profession, and I also reflected a bit more on who my colleagues have been, uh, who the leaders in the organizations where I've worked have been, mm -hmm. and rarely has it been people like me. So me and my partners, Marie, Michael, and Rida, we set up Diversity in Sustainability 
in order to equip current and aspiring Black, Indigenous, and people of color, sustainability leaders with the skills, networks, and resources to accelerate um, this transition to a sustainable and just future. And we also aim to shift the industry to become more inclusive as well. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of data to parse in your in your uh, research. What are some of the high level takeaways that sustainability teams should use to drive their recruiting and mentorship policies? That was what I was really um, wanting to hear from you. Yes, absolutely. There is so much data in there. Uh, it was it was quite a, a feat to to analyze all of it. So I, you gave a good overview of some of the key findings in terms of this being an elite and privileged profession. Um, I think uh, some other points in there are just around uh, looking at measures of belonging and psychological safety. So disproportionately white men feel the most included in the sector, whereas people who are black or South Asian or those who come from materially poor or working class backgrounds tend to feel uh, the, the least included. So I think overall, in terms of recommendations, I would say when we think of recruitment, how we attract people to the sector, we need to broaden the portrait of who we think is suitable for roles in sustainability. What, what we're finding and what you alluded to is that people who are affected by something are often not the ones who are involved in the solutions. And that seems to be the case in sustainability. So we need to think beyond formal education and working in um, elite institutions and looking at uh, instead lived experience and transferable skills. And uh, another piece is just going beyond our typical suspects. So if we're recruiting from the same schools over and over, what other schools can we target? Um, what job boards are we posting to? Some other tools I've, I've heard about uh, blind hiring. So can we take a different approach to hiring? I've, I've spoken to a few organizations who've used blind hiring software, for example. And so they've removed the whole CV process and names from the hiring process. And they've asked candidates to answer four questions instead. And they were hired based on the quality of their answer. So that, um, and I think the impact of that for those organizations were that they had a whole different set of candidates and they hired them and it's helped to shake up the organization's thinking. Um, you also asked about mentorship. So I think uh, in terms of developing and helping um, diverse candidates progress, I think one thing is examining if you're giving opportunities to everyone within the organization or, or just favorites. I think there's something around cultivating networks in the workplace that everyone has access to. So something as simple as doing team events, just making sure they're at an accessible time for those who might have other commitments. And then I think one other important point is just re-examining the, the portrait of who we see as a leader um, as we think about succession planning. So one, one uh, point that was in the survey was that um, there are a lot of East Asian and Black practitioners who are in middle manager roles. And I think in, in some cases, they might face implicit biases about their leadership qualities. So I think it's important to rethink what, what that means as we think through uh, succession in our organizations. Wow, great, great, great ideas there. I have a follow-up on the education thing. Yes. So, you know, I know a lot of organizations use like, okay, you have to have a minimum of a bachelor's degree or some other thing. 
I mean, you mentioned degree programs or other um, education. Like, have you, have you seen any um, particularly effective uh, ideas around that? Or is that someplace where we need a lot more development? I think uh, there's been a proliferation of short courses, for example, and, you know, easier ways for people to develop skills. But I think even in my own experience being in sustainability, I did do a master's degree myself, but most of the things I've I've worked on sustainability, I've learned in my job <laughs> rather than during my master's degree. <laughs> so, right. so I think there's something uh, to, to be said about transferable skills, being able to learn quickly rather than, uh, you know, focusing on this person got an elite education. So therefore they fit into our organization. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I do want to take a moment to acknowledge for our listeners that we both actually had our undergraduate at McGill <laughs> University in Canada, which we discovered as we were prepping for this. But um, anyway, I, I, I wanted to take a moment to ask you about your own experiences. How do you identify and why do you feel so strongly about this issue personally? Mm-hmm. So my background, I'm a Chinese-Canadian woman. I'm the daughter of two Chinese immigrants who fled the Cultural Revolution. And so my parents, I I grew up in a working class family. My dad was a tool and die maker. My mom started out as a seamstress. So both of them didn't have a lot of education themselves. And I think, but they saw the importance of an education for their children. And, uh, you know, they pushed us to do our best and build that resilience and, and grit. So I think um, as I got older, I uh, we moved from a working class to a middle class neighborhood. And I, I did go to a school that was filled with children of families of great wealth, uh, predominantly white students. And so it took some time for me to adjust to that. So both from a racial perspective, but also from a, um, a class perspective as well. And so I think over time, I've built this ability to, to code switch, to be a chameleon in, in different situations. And it, it just became a reflex to, to navigate white spaces. So I think um, when I think about when I got into the field of sustainability in 2008, to some extent, it felt very lonely. I often say that, um, you know, I didn't come across another East Asian person in sustainability until after I finished my master's degree. And and that was very um, telling. And so I I think as I was um, deepening my experience in the field, I I didn't have a lot of colleagues who were um, non-white individuals. And oftentimes when I did come across one, it was like we were these kindred spirits or these ships passing through the night. And certainly it wasn't common to see people like me in in leadership roles. Um, So I think the other component is as I've developed in my career, I've been working on things like responsible sourcing on, on key commodities like sugar, coffee, cocoa. And after last year, I think reflecting on the development of those industries and their reliance on slavery, I really thought to myself, whoa, what am I doing but just putting a Band-Aid on the legacy of slavery? And so I think that was a big aha moment for me. And I've also done a lot of work with the garment sector over the years. And I think I've also just thought a little bit more about, you know, wow, could those women in the garment factories easily have been my mom or me um, had my parents not immigrated to Canada? So it's just thinking through that lens as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love that the research points out that diversity isn't just about race. 
So how can the sustainability profession be more welcoming to individuals who are neurodiverse or who might have what might be perceived as a disability? They're blind, they're, they've, got, they've got some kind of physical challenge. Yes. Yeah, so thanks for that. We wanted to make sure we took an intersectional approach because there's so many contributing factors to people's experiences based on their multiple identities. So I think for those with neurodiversity or disabilities, I think for our profession, we need to build an understanding and competency around the challenges that people face who are neurodiverse and, and have disabilities. So for colleagues that you might have, I think it's around understanding their individual circumstances and making the right accommodations where needed so that they have a level playing field and getting the work done. I think it's about creating a psychologically safe environment for them to thrive so they're comfortable talking about the challenges that they might face and asking for help where it's needed. I think there's something else around being flexible on how, when, and where people work as well. And I, I think that's only been accelerated by the pandemic. So I'll, I'll give you an example. There was a man who I was speaking to who is in sustainability, who's neurodiverse, and he was telling me how he gets easily distracted in an open plan environment. So, you know, he had a very high sensitivity to different sensory stimuli. If, you know, a colleague was clacking away on their computer or the humming of the lights. And so he told me that during the pandemic, he's benefited significantly from working from home where he's been able to control his working environment. There isn't so much background noise. So that's just one example, but there's so many types of um, neurodiversity and, and disabilities. And um, I think it's just a matter of, of building that understanding amongst us. Great. Well, we're going to definitely include the link to the survey in um, this this episode right up. One last question for you. Um, and by the way, you can feel free to share a link in, in this answer as well. I'm just, you know, what other final recommendations would you have um, or would diversity and sustainability have for helping others change the dynamics of the profession? Yes, for sure. So we have a few high level recommendations. I should mention that following the release of the survey, we're going to be facilitating a few deep dive discussions on building out recommendations for different actors in the industry, whether it's HR professionals, organizational leaders, recruitment agencies, schools, et cetera, et cetera. So um, stay tuned for that. But we did come up with a few high level recommendations. So I think um, really, I think the first one is to do that inner work. So first within ourselves, what headwinds and tailwinds have we faced as individuals and within our organizations, how are and aren't we living up to our values? So really taking that time to um, assess ourselves and our organizations. The second part is just creating that level playing field within our organizations. So in our report, and, and as Heather alluded to, we talk a bit about how we come from a, a privileged background. So I think, especially when we have low pay for um, entry level roles, or unpaid internships, we really need to pay at least a living wage for entry level roles and internships. So that levels the playing field for everyone. Um, another piece that I alluded to as well was just around flexible working arrangements. It's helpful on so many fronts. So it's for people who have caregiving requirements, people who have disabilities um, or might be neurodiverse and you know many other people benefit from that. I think the third recommendation is 
building psychological safety within organizations. So really taking on an approach of being curious and humble and taking that time to have those hard discussions where needed. Uh, fourth is building that cultural competency and seeing people as individuals. So working off of our strengths, scheduling that time, that sort of unstructured time to get to know people as people and um, building that knowledge through proximity. And then I think the last piece is just going beyond the typical crowd. So we need to just broaden our approach to hiring people from the usual suspects, the same schools, the same um, uh, backgrounds, and uh, you know, looking at new suppliers, new speakers, and just giving others that we haven't met before a chance. Uh, there's there's more um, recommendations in there, but those are the, the top ones I wanted to highlight with you. Great. Is there a link that uh, the listeners should go to for this? Yes. So the report will be available as of September 16th at um, diversityinsustainability.com. Super. Thanks, Heather, for being with us today. Thank you for your time. You just heard from Heather Mack, co-founder of Diversity in Sustainability. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll learn more about the organization stories and events we mentioned. And while you're over there, check out our free weekly newsletters. It's a great way to stay up to date all week long. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to learn more about them and to sign up. We'd love to hear from you, your comments, your questions, your tips. Hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with a Climate Week edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in. This episode is sponsored by Watershed, modern software to help businesses turn carbon data into action. Join Watershed on September 23rd for an event about climate solutions and how companies can accelerate the technologies, policies, and tactics that really work. For more information, please visit watershedclimate.com. And this episode is sponsored by global technology company ABB. Through its leading technologies and sustainable business practices, ABB is enabling a low-carbon society. Find out more at abb.com forward slash sustainability.